0: Well, I don't think there's anyone out there that would say, I don't want my home to be blessed. Like, I don't think there's anybody out there that would say, blessing, eh, not really something I need. Blessing is typically something that we would welcome. Now, we might say, I don't really have enough of it. <laughs> I could stand to have more blessing. But I don't think anybody's going to say, eh, not necessary, not welcome. I believe that we would love to see our home's and our families, our children, blessed. I believe that we would love to see our lives blessed. I believe that we would love to see um, our communities blessed, our church blessed, even our nation blessed, our world blessed. Blessing is a good thing, it's a very good thing. And yet, a lot of us might get to the point at some point in our lives where we say, I'm not even sure having a blessed home is a possibility or my family anymore. Some of us, for a variety of reasons, have or may at some point given up on the possibility of having that blessed family. Uh, In in the world we currently live in, we're more likely to see families who we could describe as struggling than families we would describe as blessed. Families where the marriage is struggling. Families where raising kids is more uh, difficult than they realized it would be. Families living paycheck to paycheck and still coming up short. And that's really only the beginning of the possible challenges. There really are so many challenges to families today, a record number of single parents, an increase in blended families, and while there are absolutely positives to blended families, um, it's still, there are issues that come up in those situations. We talked a, a month or two ago about the sheer amount of kids who are awaiting foster care or awaiting adoption, And so as we continue today, we're in this series, our second week of the series, called Bless This Home. And we're basing this out of Matthew chapter 5, commonly known as the Beatitudes. It's this teaching of Jesus where Jesus says, blessed are certain people for these reasons. We're going to look at these teachings, and, and for four weeks here, two more weeks after today, we're going to try to decide what it would look like if we applied the Beatitudes to our homes, to our families. So even if you're not married, haven't started a family yet or anything like that, These are highly valuable on the individual level, but just as applicable to families. And so today's beatitude comes from verse 6 of Matthew 5, and it says this, God blesses those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Interestingly, other versions of Scripture, other translations, sometimes use the word, for they will be filled. Either way, the truth is, today most of our homes must not be filled or satisfied because we always seem to be looking for something to fill or satisfy our homes. We're always looking for something that would bring meaning, um, and we're often trying to do it ourselves. We keep filling our lives with things that don't matter, and as a result, we're not as filled, we're not as satisfied, and more importantly, not as blessed as we would be if we were hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And for the sake of clarity, when we say righteousness, we're talking about right living, right doing, doing the right thing in the way we live to please God by faith, And by the way, we live in front of the world around us. And that's what we're called to do here in this verse, is to strive for righteousness, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I do love that Jesus uses hunger and thirst there. We get that pretty well, because we hunger every day at some point, and thirst probably more often than that. Um, And usually we can take care of hunger when we need to. We can take care of thirst. If we thirst, we grab something to drink. If we're hungry, we grab a snack. But to hunger... A little longer to have to wait. To, to have to wait a little longer to quench your thirst. Uh, when that happens, we begin to understand just a little bit more what it would really mean to hunger and to thirst. And so to hunger and thirst for righteousness means that we aren't satisfied until we're filled with what we're hungering and thirsting for, which in this case is righteousness. And because we're not capable as human beings of being completely righteous, what that means, and that's because of sin, but what that means is. To hunger and thirst for righteousness means to seek after it as if it was attainable, even though it's not, which creates an ongoing desire for righteousness. It's Constant. There is no finish line in this life because we're not capable of complete righteousness. And yet here's the question I have to ask, and, and please be, try to be in, in your head with yourself as honest as possible when you think about this. In your life, in your family, in your home, In whatever your life situation is right now, what is it that you are striving for? What is it that you are hungering and thirsting for? What is it that you are pursuing? What matters most? Because honestly, some of you, integrity intact, could say, Our goal is to please God. We're trying to please God. That, that, That rates above everything else. Because I believe that there are some people that are actually doing that. They're doing the right things, they're striving. For righteousness. But not everyone can answer that way. And so think honestly if you can't answer that way. And and let's make this even simpler. Think about the last seven days of your life, of your family. Just the last week. What did you pursue? What did you hunger for? And if we're truly being honest, some people would have to say, I'm striving for a chance to relax. Because in the last seven days, I've simply just said, "I, I need to find five minutes Need a five, ten minutes, and, and, and everything that you did in the last seven days was to hopefully get, a, get a, a rest at some point. If that's what you were striving for in the last seven days, that's what you were hungering thirsty for, that, that might be the case. Other people might have to say, well, based on the last seven days, we're striving to have a good time. Because ultimately, we'll go to work, we'll do our thing, or we'll go to school, we'll do our thing, but, but we want to make sure we have a good time at some point. That, that's the ultimate goal. If we don't have a good time, it's been a lost week. And so that's what we're, we're striving for. Some people might say we're striving for Comfort. Some would say, we, we just, we're just striving to, to make it through the week. <laughs> just get me to the end of those seven days. Some would, again, if we're being honest, have to say, well, we're hungering, we're thirsting for popularity. Or for status, or for the right image. Some would say, we're, we're hungering and thirsting for money. For success, for status. Some would say, we're hungering for love, or for acceptance. Some are hungering for their children's success. Whatever it is, if you put nothing in front of it, if it comes first, whatever it is, you're probably hungering and thirsting for it. And if you put it before God, if you're hungering and thirsting for something over hungering and thirsting for God, it's probably going to be a problem. It's going to create some conflict. And the truth is a lot of us do that. A lot of us put things ahead of God. And we'll even say, well, once I get this taken care of, then I'll make God first. Once I get some time, then I'll make God first. Once once the stress level goes down, then I can really put God first. Once my schedule is a little less busy, I can put God first. And we convince ourselves, my intentions are good. (laughs) Eventually God's going to be first, I just can't do it right now. Anything we're putting in front of God it's going to end up being a problem. And so what do we do when we realize that we're hungering for the wrong things, when we realize we have an appetite for things that, that truly won't satisfy in the long run, that aren't what's best for us? When that happens, we need to change our appetite. Because I guarantee you this, if you love pizza and you stop eating pizza for a few months, and every time you would normally eat pizza, and let's just say you're crazy and you eat pizza like daily, like you're a college student basically, you eat pizza daily, Every time you would normally eat pizza for an entire month you eat veggies or fish or chicken and fruit healthy stuff you will notice a change in physically how you feel. If you are a person that eats pizza every day and every time instead of eating pizza you eat something healthy it will change the way you feel. And if after a month or even a few months you go back and you try to eat pizza in the same way and in the same quantity you once did it will probably make you sick. And you'll realize that what you craved has significantly changed. When we stay strong eating the things that are good for us, the truth is, eventually, and this takes a while, but eventually you stop craving some of the junk food that wasn't so good for you. It's a change in appetite. And when we pursue God, when we seek God above all else, as we pursue Him, we'll begin to see the benefits of walking that path. And as you do that, you'll find yourself longing for more of God, and the junk food of this world, if you will, which distracts us all from time to time, will become less and less Desirable, it's still there. It's still tempting sometimes. But the more you've sought after God, the less desirable it becomes. The less desirable it becomes. You won't crave it as much because your appetites changed. but only if you're truly pursuing God, hungering and thirsting for Him. And that's a daily thing. That's not just on Sundays, not just when it's convenient, because here's a tough truth that I think you and I, we need to understand. A lot of us don't hunger and thirst For righteousness. We just look for a righteous snack here or there. We have one meal of righteousness a week or so, usually on Sunday, and we say, I went to church, I did my part, I did my godly duty. We feel good about that, and then we wonder where the blessing is. We say, God, I gave you Sunday, at least part of it, before football started. The truth is, if we're giving God our Sunday, if we're giving God that hour a week or even two hours a week, that's not the same as hungering and thirsting, for righteousness, no matter how much credit we want to give ourselves. And the truth is, sometimes we want to give ourselves a lot of credit for that. Um, You know, we we say, hey, God, I gave you way less than one-seventh of my week. I feel pretty good about that. And if that sounds harsh, honestly, it's meant to sound harsh. I, I need to hear it just as much as you do because we give ourselves credit for what we give to God when it's often a very small portion of what we have. And so when it comes to this idea of pursuing righteousness in our homes, and our families, and in our lives, what I want to do with you today is I want to share with you a couple things that don't work and a couple things that do work. Just kind of some practical stuff. And there really are only two main things that don't work, two things that kind of cover all the things that people do to try to pursue righteousness in their homes that just don't work. And the first one is legalistic Christianity. Legalistic Christianity never works for this. Okay? Now, what do I mean by that? Well, in the context of our homes and families, Legalistic Christianity is when we turn following Jesus into a bunch of do's and don'ts. Can's and can'ts, not should and shouldn't. Don't do this. Don't do that. Do this. It's the rule. And we say this, this is how you follow Jesus, with these rules. But here's the problem, and this is in your insert on purpose. I don't want you to miss this. Rules without a relationship almost always lead to rebellion. Rules without a relationship almost always lead to rebellion. You know this. You know that if someone in your life who, who you don't know very well tries to drop some rules on you, you say, who are you to tell me what to do, right? Like there's an immediate rebellion there. Like, wait a second. Why, who put you in charge of this? And I can qualify this by saying this is something we did when we were kids. We didn't respect rules. But you know what the best example of this is that tells me that we as adults will still struggle with this? HOAs, okay? If you've ever been part of a homeowner's association... At some point, you will find yourself saying, what are they really going to do if my trash is at the curb one extra day? Like, maybe I should leave it just to test them. Because who are they to tell me what I can and cannot do? Or, you know, who who are they to tell me how long my grass can be? Or who are they to tell me what I can put in my backyard? Or something like that. If you've ever been part of an HOA, I can almost guarantee you've had those thoughts where you say, now wait a minute, this is my property, (laughs) I bought this house. How can they make any statement on what I can and cannot do? In most situations, we don't really have like a a buddy-buddy relationship with the HOA. So yeah, we don't respect their rules because we don't have a relationship. Parents, you've probably done this with your child's school if you've had school-aged children. At some point, there will be a rule the school tries to enforce that you as a parent maybe don't agree with. And you catch yourself going, well, that's a really dumb rule. (laughs) I don't really agree with that. And you, you get that internal struggle where you're like, well, my kids are really supposed to listen to me first, but I probably shouldn't tell them to willfully disobey. And, and there's this temptation to say, honey, you can wear that if you want to. I dare them to send you home because I disagree with the rule. And we struggle because we say, my rules for my kids, but then we send them somewhere else. And there's a temptation there to get a little bit rebellious. It's not really something we grow out of, but it's, it's, it's a lack of relationship there. We say, well, who are you to put rules in place. That's what legalistic Christianity does. It says, here's the rules, and you say, whoa, 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 who are you to tell me what to do? That's why it doesn't work. Because we just end up rebelling. And then the second thing that never works is lukewarm Christianity. Lukewarm Christianity never works. This is when we believe in God but live like he doesn't exist. And the truth is a lot of people do that. They say, of course I believe in God, but it's not reflected in how they live. It's when we come to church, but for the rest of the week, no one would ever guess that we did. It's when people that know you well are surprised to hear that you're a Christian or that you go to church. It's a Christian in name, but with no passion for the things of God. Now, how do you know this is you? How would I know if this was me? Well, it's not for me to judge you or your home, but if you can't remember the last time you and your spouse prayed together or you and your kids had a prayer together, you may be trending toward lukewarm. If the Bible is never opened in your home individually or in a group, you may be trending toward lukewarm. If we expose our children to things that aren't positive, that aren't of God on a regular basis, we're probably treading toward lukewarm. Honestly, if being at church every Sunday without fail has become, well, at least we made it once this month, probably trending toward lukewarm. Revelation chapter 3 is, Revelation chapter three is actually where this comes from. In verses 15 and 16 these are the letters written to seven churches, um, kind of in the end times there, uh, as written in Revelation. And this is what Jesus says to the church in Laodicea in verse 15 and 16. He says, I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. But since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. It's just You're not so bad, but you're not so good either. You're just kind of in the middle, and what good are you in that situation? In fact, lukewarm Christianity is really only good for one thing. Um, It does make us feel just a little bit better about ourselves for at least a short amount of time. But just like legalistic Christianity, it it doesn't work. You're not going to get where you need to be. You're not going to get to where you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness by being okay with, well, I made it to church once this month, that was pretty good. So that's what doesn't work. What does work? Well, it goes back to what we talked about last week, that our goal shouldn't be to just be... Christian families and have Christian homes, but to be Christ-centered families, to have Christ-centered homes. Because a large number of people would say still today, yeah, of course we're a Christian family, but they're not a Christ-centered home. You see, here's what I want us to think about as we continue to move through these beatitudes that Jesus taught in Matthew 5. Nowhere in there does it say, blessed are those who believe in Christ when it's convenient for them. None of these say, blessed are you when this is convenient for you and you do it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's no room for whenever I'm ready to or when it's convenient. If you're only striving for righteousness when it's convenient or when you have time, you're not hungering and thirsting. There's a responsibility in there. It's active, it's not passive. And that's true of all of these Beatitudes, it's ongoing, it's not a checklist. Listen to how King David phrases that drive, that striving. In Psalm chapter 63, verse 1, he says, O God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. The imagery there is strong. If God is the water, the world that David felt like he was living in was so dry, it needed God. It needed God. And I don't believe that David is just using big words here or just using big imagery here. Because if you read through the Psalms, David is simply gut level honest most of the time. He says what he's feeling. He says what he means. He cries out to God. That's what we read in his words. And I believe this is how he felt. And the truth is a lot of the time for us, we're not really longing for God In any way, and if from a godly standpoint, David's land really was that dry and weary land that needed God, how much more dry and weary is the land we're living in today? You see, we need to get to this point where as a family we can say, God, you are our God. Earnestly, we seek you. We thirst and long for you in this world that cannot satisfy us. I mean, think about the things that we long for as individuals or as a family Instead of God in this context. Oh, popularity, you are our God. We long for you in a dry and weary land. Oh, Monday, you are our God. We long for you because we make money again in our dry and weary land. I know, nobody really longs for Monday unless it's money-making day. Oh, fun, you are our God. We long for you in a dry and weary land. Oh, kids' sports, you are our God. We long for you in a dry and weary land. Oh, sleep on Sunday morning. You are our God. We long for you in a dry and weary land. I hope I didn't hit a nerve there. You guys are in late church, but you got your sleep this morning probably. It sounds absolutely ridiculous, but some of us live that way and wonder why we feel empty. And yet, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled, not empty, filled. So we want to make this as practical as possible to figure out what this looks like. If you want to create a Christ-centered home, your job, along with any other leader within your home or your family, should be this. Help our family see God as loving, approachable, and involved. Help our family see God as loving, approachable, and involved. It's simple. In all things, we want to make sure our, our family sees God as loving. That's a baseline understanding of God. Before any of the rest of this, we need to teach our kids, to teach our families that God is loving. And then we layer it because understanding that He's approachable is almost as important. That that there is such a thing as interaction with God. That we are able to pray to God. And then you you throw another layer on there uh, because then we understand that, that, that He wants us to rely on Him. Pastor Craig Rochelle, who originated this series, asked his daughter, what advice she would give to a family that wanted to make their home Christ-centered. He, he came up with this whole idea of we want to make a Christ-centered home, and he asked her, he said, what should I say? And she said, you as a family should create an environment where your kids want to have discussions about God so it's not something they feel like they have to do, but something they want to do. You should strive to get to the point where if your family's going to talk about God, it's not forced conversation." Now, it may start out as forced conversation if it's not something you've ever done before, but you get to the point where it's welcome, where it's expected. Hey, this is just something that we talk about. It won't happen overnight, but we need to create a culture, cultivate a culture in our homes where God and church and the Bible aren't things we have to do, but are desirable and are all part of the foundation of who our family is. Because then, I believe it won't be like pulling teeth to get them to go to church. Then it won't be a struggle for them to come to you for prayer when they're struggling. Then you can feel better someday when they move away and their faith could stay strong. That's the goal, to create an environment where your kids want to have discussions of God. Not because they have to, but because they want to. And so to help us get there, there are three kind of simple things I just want to throw your way. Three things that can help us do this in our homes. The first one is this. In our homes, in our families, we should be involving God in our daily conversations. And it may seem weird at first if you don't already do this, but driving down the road, let's say you see a beautiful sunset, don't just point out the beautiful sunset. Point out the creator of the beautiful sunset. Give God credit in the process. I mean, it's His sunset. He did create it. And you're bringing God into the conversation in what's not such a weird way. You know, Next time you and your spouse are trying to make a decision and you go to Old Faithful, the pros and cons list, I don't know if any of you use pros and cons. It sometimes works well. Instead, suggest, I wonder what it is God would have us do. Pray about it. Bring God into the conversation. When something good happens, verbally, out loud, give God the glory. Don't say, go me. Say, thanks God. You see, it's only weird to talk about God if you never talk about God. It's only weird to talk about God if we never talk about God. Think about that. Because around the office, we talk sports occasionally. And Larry's not a big sports guy, but he'll talk a little bit of football with us. And it's not weird, because every once in a while he, he, he considers himself a Redskins fan, he'll talk football a little bit. But if he walks in one day and starts talking hockey, it's just going to be weird. Because we've never talked about hockey in the office before, and so if he comes in and talks hockey, it's going to be strange. It's only weird to talk about something if you never talk about it. The truth is, some of us don't talk about God to keep it from being weird when we bring it up. And so we need to involve God in our daily conversations. The second thing we need to do, and this one is extremely controversial, and I have gone back and forth on this for years with my thought process, that's to make church non-negotiable. If we're going to be a Christ-centered home, then worship together on a Sunday morning or whenever it is. It has to be a priority. and It has to be a non-negotiable one. Over the years, so many parents have asked me if they should make their kids come to church. And I get both sides of it. I absolutely do. There are areas where you need to do what's best for your kids, whether they like it or not. But if I force them now, they'll resent me and resent church later. Those are the two sides. Like, I know this might be important, but what if they hate me later for it? Or what if it turns them off of church completely? Here's where I honestly fall on this right now, today. At a certain age, I think it really does need to be their decision. But I think a lot of families are letting it be their decision too soon. And I also firmly believe that a lot of kids today are wise enough to know that. To know that their parents are worried that it might scar them and they're going to say, well, I can win this either way and I don't have to go to church. I've seen it happen. Kids know that you think you're going to damage them by dragging them to church. The truth of the matter is, whether your kids want to be here or not, if you can get them here, you should. Because it certainly can hurt and probably in the long run can help at least plant a seed in them. Romans 10.17 says, So faith comes from hearing, that is hearing the good news about Christ. Exposure to Christians, exposure to, to the worship time and the word of God and all the things that we do together on a Sunday morning. It may not result in them becoming a devoted follower of Jesus, but it could and I hope that it will. Think about the other things that are non-negotiable in your house. School, eating, brushing your teeth, sleeping, bathing, all things that would hurt our kids if we just let them decide. Because I know, sometimes brushing the teeth in my house is like, you got to twist somebody's arm to get it to happen. Especially if you don't have the right kind of toothpaste, I'll tell you what. But think about all those things that would hurt our kids if we let them decide, and then we treat church with kid gloves, We say, well, I don't want to make my child brush. We don't say, well, I'm not going to make my child brush their teeth because they might resent me someday and resent toothbrushes. We don't do that. Listen, we make it mandatory so their teeth don't rot. We make church mandatory for the sake of their soul. And there are no guarantees. But it's certainly not going to turn out well going the other direction. They might still get a cavity and they may not always love the church, but as parents, we have some responsibilities. If this matters to us for at least a time, at least to a certain age, I think we need to make church non-negotiable. If We want to have a Christ-centered home. If it's optional, we no longer have a Christ-centered home. And then the third thing, just seeking and experiencing God can be fun. Sometimes we as adults are guilty Of making following Jesus seem like a a painful process. And and it's absolutely work. There's absolutely work in following Jesus. You have to try. But sometimes we make it look painful. And, And the truth is, the things we do together as a family to grow closer to God don't have to be cheesy, they don't have to be lame, it doesn't have to always involve something that's not fun. Come up with a fun way to spend prayer time together. There are fun ways to pray. Take turns in a a unique and creative way. Draw names out of a hat. Those kinds of little things are fun. Choose upbeat worship music to listen to on the way to church. Listen, sometimes getting ready for church and driving there can be stressful and really mess up your mindset before you even get here. Make it fun. Make it worshipful on the way here. And I promise you'll in turn almost certainly get more out of the service that day because you are more ready. You see, here's the truth. Our kids will model what we do in every way. If we make God a priority, they'll see that as important. If we don't, they won't. And if we don't, we shouldn't be surprised when they don't. A wise man said it this way. He said, we don't have to tell them to be good when we are already seeking the one who is good. Our kids won't turn out exactly like us, but they certainly watch us an awful lot. And if we're seeking God first in our own lives, our families will see that in us and see that as important. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 says this, Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and He will give you everything you need. Seeking the kingdom, seeking that righteousness, it has to come first. And when you do that, when you seek God and live righteously, you'll be blessed, you'll be filled. And we like the blessing, we like the filling, but we have to remember it starts with us Seeking. And if we're not, we certainly won't have the right to wonder where the blessing is. Why we're so empty. You, whatever position you're in with your family, father, mother, child, sister, brother, whatever whatever you are, you have the ability on some level to lead from that position. To lead from that position. You may not be the the head of the household, the, the leader of the family if you had to choose one, but you can influence from any position. And if you want your family to be a Christ-centered family, if you want your home to be a Christ-centered home, you have the opportunity to help make that happen by pursuing God, by being that example. Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. This is a very commonly uh, kind of a go-to scripture, if you will, when we're talking about family. Joshua says these words. He says, But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. And I'll tell you what, it was true then and it's true now. We have options for what to serve, who to serve, how to serve. We have plenty of options out there. Plenty of things that we could choose, or decide our family is going to pursue. Plenty of things we could decide are going to be important to our families. He goes on, he said, Would you prefer the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates, or will it be the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live? If it was us, we could say, will it be success? Your success and your kids' success? Whatever it takes. Will it be comfort? We want to have everything we want and everything we could ever need. Big house, comfortable beds, all the cars, we want comfort. Whatever it is, are those what you want? Then Joshua says, but as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. We have a lot of options, but none of them measure up to a Christ-centered family that serves the Lord. And so whatever position you are in the family, you have the opportunity to help drive that. Help point in that direction to hunger and thirst, to strive for righteousness, for what God would have for your family. Let's pray. God, help us not to get distracted by so many things that this world has to offer. Because God, I believe that we know that striving for you is the best thing we can strive for. And yet, day by day, moment by moment, we seem to put other things in front of you. We strive for all of these other things that seem like they're what's good for us or for our family. God, help us to see that nothing compares serving you, to following you, to being a family that is centered on your word and in Jesus. God, whatever we have to do to get the other stuff out of the way, help us day by day, on a daily basis, to make the right choices in that, to do what needs to be done to put you first. Now you've asked us to follow and to serve you and, and You've made it possible for us to spend eternity with you through the cross. In light of that, in light of what you've done for us, help us to stop making excuses for why we can't do what you've asked us to do. As we move into a time of communion, I pray that our focus would be on that gift, that sacrifice that you made by sending Jesus to this earth to die on the cross for us. Help us to realize that nothing of this world compares to that gift. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen let are sing a song together.